Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Across the national park system, there are incredible sites that explore American history. There's a robust mix of cultures reflected in the parks and breathtaking vistas that will, well, take your breath away. But there also are seemingly countless needs, from backlogs, maintenance projects, interpretation for history, wildlife, and science that needs to be crafted, and unique issues that can range from climate change impacts to helping inner-city youth visit a park. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. Helping the National Park Service tackle these myriad issues and challenges is the National Park Foundation, which Congress created back in 1967 to be the official charitable organization for the parks. Through the years, this organization has raised literally hundreds of millions of dollars for the parks. Today, with National Parks Week underway, we're joined by Will Shafroff, the foundation's CEO, to discuss not only the needs of the park system, but the successes the foundation is recognizing in tackling some of them. We'll be back in a minute with Will. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. With Interior Federal Credit Union, you can rest assured your funds are safe. Credit unions are insured by the National Credit Union Administration, the NCUA, which means that your accounts have insurance up to $250,000. Our members haven't lost a penny of insured funds. Stay protected and join today at interiorfcu.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Welcome back to The Traveler, Will. It's great to have you. Great to be here, Kurt. Thanks for inviting me. Hey, before we get into um, the deep conversation about the Foundation's mission and successes, what are your plans for National Parks Week? You going anywhere special? Yes, we are going to have a good time down in, in Birmingham and Selma, Alabama. The Foundation's been actively involved in supporting the work down there, and so we're going to see it firsthand. I'm also going to be traveling out to, to uh, Hawaii, actually, towards the end of National Park Week. So I'll be both in Maui and on the Big Island to visit Hawaii Volcanoes and Haleakala uh, as a part of that week. Boy, that's too bad. You know, um, my wife and I were out there with uh, our, our youngest son and his wife back in uh, November of 2021, I guess. And they liked it so much, they moved um, out there to Hilo. And so um, we have a place to stay whenever we want to go back there. That's awesome. As I'd mentioned in the introduction, the foundation was launched back in 1967, 56 years ago, and has raised hundreds of millions of philanthropic dollars that have been put to work in the parks. Now, this might be asking you um, about which is your favorite park, but can you cite some of the major initiatives or projects that the foundation has been involved with? Yes, sir. Um, one of the, the things that really put us on the map Kurt, was the uh, Flight 93 National Memorial. That was established by Congress, uh, but it came with zero appropriation dollars. So mm -hmm. the foundation 
agreed to work closely with the Park Service to to stand it up. And we ultimately raised more than $45 million to help buy the land, to design the park, to, to pay for the development of the park. And so it was one of the first opportunities for the foundation to really step up and show what it could do. Uh, so that that's a big one. Most recently, the foundation's been actively involved in, in a major renovation and an improvement to the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, this wow. is, everybody knows that 8 million people visit Lincoln every year. And uh, I think a lot of those visitors are hungry for more information about Abraham Lincoln, and they're hungry for more information about the memorial itself. And so there'll be a new opportunity for people to, to visit that place in the undercroft, the place underneath the statue of Lincoln will be opened up to visitor experience to learn more about the history that the memorial has made and also learn more about Abraham Lincoln, his life and times and kind of how it relates to today. So in that case, we the foundation is, con is contributing $43 million to support that project uh, towards a nearly $70 million budget. But clearly, uh, not but for the National Park Foundation's contributions, this project wouldn't be happening. Now that forty-three million, um, I know you have different sources of revenue. Some some donors come to you and say we'd like to commit this much money to this project. Um, others, you raise you raise funds for a specific project. Can you say where that forty-three million came from? Sure. Yeah. Um, our our initial donor was David Rubenstein, who has contributed to a number of projects to support work in Washington D.C. in particular on the Mall of Washington. Washington Monument, Lincoln Jefferson uh, Memorial, Lincoln Memorial, but also Arlington House, Iwo Jima, Belmont Paul. He's been a great champion for patriotic philanthropy. And so he made his initial commitment back in 2016 for as the Park Service was just beginning to conceive of this idea. Uh, a couple of our board members, John Now and Rick James, have also been very generous in their support. Ken Griffin, uh, another gentleman in the finance sector, also made a meaningful contribution to this, this work. So We've um, we've been greatly benefited by those donors, and we've also been able to contribute a, you know, commit a small portion of our congressional appropriation towards this to, to match the private dollars. Right, right. Now, um, I don't know off the top of my head, or I don't know if you know off the top of your head, how much money the foundation raises every year for the parks. But if you do, can you can you kind of break it down percentage wise between? individual donors and, and corporate donors or individuals like uh, Mr. Rubenstein? Sure. I, I can I can take a crack at it off the top of my head here, Kurt. I can give you some proportional numbers. I'd say, I'd say that the, the all-in revenue this last year was almost $170 million. And that came from, you know, roughly $25 million in corporate revenue, $25 million in, in foundation revenue. The uh, individual, we break down in a lot of different categories. You know, we had, a, I think, over the last couple of years, had about a million donors. So most of those are small donors, donors that come through direct mail and online giving, things like that. But we have categories of people who are major and principal givers. And those are people, you know, write a check of something north of $25,000 a year, all the way up to, you know, as much as 20, $25 million. We had a donor last year in, in that range. Um, we also have people who make plan gifts, who, who you know commit dollars from their from their wills, and some people who who have already included this in their wills, and and um, what we call those those plan gifts have realized. In other words, the person has passed, and we receive those money. So, the good news, Kurt, is that the foundation's team that that we that we built up over the years has gotten 
pretty good at, at all different forms of revenue. We have a very robust corporate program, a very active foundations team, a great group of people working on planned gifts in the long run. You know, people who run our direct mail program, principal and major givers all over the country, gift officers all over the country. And so the good news is that we're strong across the board and it's enabling us to increase our revenue year over year. We also get in-kind revenue from, you know, Subaru has been a major contributor of ours, not just in dollars, but in in-kind revenue. And so if you some of their TV commercials will have the National Park Foundation listed. That helps our brand and helps our public visibility and therefore our ability to raise other dollars from other people. Have recent economic events impacted the giving? I mean, obviously, inflation's um, kind of been roaring in, in recent quarters, and, and that's led to some some financial squeezing out there. But I, I've heard, and um, you can correct me or, or add to it, that last year, while the number of individuals who contributed to various charities across the country, um, the dollar amount was actually up. Well, our, our funding last year was our best year yet. Uh, and so, um, again, that was across the board in all different channels. And I can't, I don't have all the breakdowns of whether or not this chapter, this sector was the highest ever, but let's just say that uh, in the aggregate, it was a very good year. But we've just decided to stay in market, if you will. We, we continue to believe that national parks, if anything, are becoming a more important value to citizens of this country and donors to us than they were before. I think the pandemic and the confinement and you know just the opportunity to reflect on what's important in life has given people who contribute to us an opportunity to realize that, that it is an important asset that they want to maintain um, in their lives and, give, and pass on to the next generation. And so whether it be a corporation or foundation or individual, finding common cause around the, the, the support of national parks through the National Park Foundation. Right, right. We're talking today with Will Shafroff, the CEO of the National Park Foundation. It's uh, National Park Week, and so we thought we'd check in with Will to see how philanthropic giving is going to the foundation and, and what projects they're able to accomplish. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with the breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. So, well, getting back into the discussion of um, the needs across the national park system, the challenges are many, of course, and they can be found in parks that actually predate the National Park Service, such as Yellowstone, uh, but also to more recently designated parks, as you mentioned, Selma to Montgomery National Historic Trail. 
I believe the, the foundation recently helped acquire some property down there to build a voting rights interpretive center in Selma. It did. It did. Thanks for asking about that. You know, one of the roles that we played, Kurt, as a congressionally chartered partner for the National Park Service is to, to help them work on projects that, that haven't, frankly, that, that don't benefit from being in the, in the public spotlight necessarily yet. And, and, you know, acquiring property to help the Park Service do something in a place like Selma was, uh, was a role that we played, that we stepped in and worked closely with the, the property owner to facilitate the transfer of that land uh, to the Park Service so that it can now build, a, you know, plan and build an interpretive education center that commemorates the Selma Montgomery Voting Rights Marches of 1965. And so it was one of these situations where we just, again, we played a, a role of but for the foundation, this probably wouldn't have happened. Wow. You know, it's probably safe to say that each of the projects that the foundation is involved in is unique, but one um, that jumped out to me in a list that your staff presented me was the Sea Sisters project at Biscayne National Park. What can you tell me about that? Yeah, that is a really cool project. And it's one that we've been involved with a whole lot of different kind of projects all over the country. But the Sea Sisters and the Sea Key Biscayne is one that I, I, I love. It's part of our Women in Parks program. Um, the Sea Sisters is a, is a nonprofit organization that introduces disabled American veterans to the therapeutic benefits of scuba diving. In this case, they dive in Florida's Key Biscayne National Park. And um, having been recently certified as a scuba diver, I can attest to my own personal experience about what a magical place this is. But especially, you know, if you're disabled, the weightlessness of scuba diving means that you're able to navigate these places, you know, in, in a way that you can't necessarily do on land. And it's just a, it's a, just a beautiful thing. The, the team receives special training and mentorship while assisting the Park Service with management needs of recreational diving locations and making them more enjoyable for Park Service. So the team recently dived at nine different sites within Key Biscayne and removed a total of 587 pounds of marine debris from the park's floor. So What's great about it, there's a public service element of this as well. They're able to participate in something that's doing good for the park. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's been said that um, the night sky is the other half of the park system. But I think we also need to to look beneath the surface of the waters, largely, of course, the uh, uh, the marine waters, the, the salt waters, but also at Isle Royale, there's uh, some incredible steamship wrecks down there at, at Yellowstone National Park. Yellowstone Lake, you've got the incredible geothermal world that's underneath the water. Just so many different elements of the national park system that um, I think we tend to, to overlook some of them at, from time to time. Totally agree. I, I spend a week of the year up in Voyager's National Park, uh, and I enjoy both the night sky and the lake uh, situation up there, both swimming, and and we always take our masks and snorkels and, and are able to kind of uh, explore from at least from the surface uh, what happens underneath those amazing places. Yeah, it's truly incredible. Um, I also understand, and and I don't know if this is public knowledge yet, um, that the foundation is providing, I believe, more than one million dollars to Yosemite National Park um, for work on the Mist Trail. Is that something you can talk about, or should we uh, hold off on that? No, that's good. Let's let's talk about it. Um, you know, we're funding, the foundation is funding a large-scale multiple-year restoration effort to renovate one of the most popular hiking trails in, in, in Yosemite. 
it's actually the Half Dome Trail Corridor Project is what we're calling it. And within that is the Mist Trail, but also the part of the, the John Muir Trail as well. We're providing $1.3 million. They'll be awarded to the Yosemite Conservancy, one of the most effective park partners in the country uh, that, that that's worked with Yosemite National Park. The, the Conservancy is actually contributing a lion's share of the project. Overall, 15 to $20 million is expected to complete the project. Um, as I said, it's it's actually the Mist Trail, the John Muir Trail, Vernal and Nevada Falls, Little Yosemite Valley, and, and Half Dome will actually be encompassed in this overall project. So the project will transform the visitor experience, um, you know, by helping to improve safety. If, you, if you've walked along the Mist Trail, it's it's quite the harrowing in, in a few places. And so we want to make sure that there aren't any accidents and people feel safe and actually are safe up there. Uh, rehabilitates the John Muir Trailhead, which is obviously a, a critical part of the experience. When you get to a trailhead, you want to make sure you have good wayfinding and navigation. We're going to create a new viewing area at Vernal Falls, and uh, we need to make sure that they're going to, we're going to make some safety improvements on the historic cable on the Half Dome. I went on Half Dome occurred the first time in 1983, and I was a very in-shape 26-year-old and uh, my buddy and I were trying to go up there without holding onto the cable. We made it about 50 feet and then we grabbed onto the cable for dear life for the rest of the way. So I think in the in the in the last four years, it probably needs a significant uh, upgrade at this point. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've, I've hiked the Mist Trail and, and Half Dome. And, you know, when you get up to the top of the, the Mist Trail on the, the top of Nevada Fall, I guess, where the Merced River falls into the valley, there's an outcrop. And. One day I saw somebody sitting on that outcrop, their feet dangling over. Nothing I'm going to come close to doing. <laughs> no, it's also amazing. I, I just remember the, the the air temperature dropping dramatically because the water that's coming over the top has just come out of the, the mountains. And, and uh, it's probably in the 40 degrees, somewhere in the 40s. And it's coming off there and it's cooling the air. So you've hiked up, you're hot, you're sweaty, and then you get up there and the air temperatures in the 40s or low 50s, and it's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, no, it really is. It's it's one of the great experiences in the national park system. Um, and I'm I'm curious. You know, we mentioned a couple projects. There's over 420 units in the national park system. How do you go about deciding what you're going to fund or what you're able to fund? That's a great question. We we try to two two big things. One is that unlike you know most of the, our national partners. We, we rely on complete alignment with the National Park Service. We have to, you know, wake up our day and, and we don't pretend to know better. We don't pretend to think that that we have a better idea than they do. We're in lockstep with them and, and we have to be in order to ensure that we can deliver the financial resources we raise in a, the most efficient and effective manner. And so the, it starts with really us working with the Park Service, you know, at a high level and identifying what are the priorities where you have a need and we have an ability to raise money to support those needs. You know, there's some things that donors are going to be less inclined. You know, they're going to be less inclined to, to repave roads, for instance, even though that might be an important need for the parks, donors are not going to necessarily resonate with that as some a place to write their check. So we've we find we've we've accomplished that through what we call our mission pillars. We've got seven areas I can go through in a bit if you want me to, but that's a key element of, of that kind of alignment of purpose. Secondly, we you know we we really try to become informed and get to know superintendents and what's going on and our friends group partners out in the field to find out 
all right, what's happening? You know, where where is there a need coming down? A great example back in 2016 was the Antelope Flats project in, in Grand Teton. That became a, a local priority and then it, it bubbled up and became a national priority. But but we were in to, to support that project because it was going to be of such a magnitude that our local partner, Grand Teton National Park Foundation, would have had some difficulty doing that. So Yeah, I think that was um, 640 acres that was uh, privately owned and there was the, the prospect of... Uh, um, private ownership turning it into something um, not exactly compatible with Grand Teton National Park setting. 35 acre tracks right in the smack in the middle of the park in front of in, in line with one of the most important wildlife corridors that exist in, in that part of the world. So we we do that and then we work with our donors uh, to, to get agreement with them on a, at a higher level, hopefully, about what they can do. So they might activate on sustainability, in which case we'll go back to the park service and find out where is your sustainability projects that generally fit these criteria, or it might be land acquisition or wildlife protection, or it could be engaging young people in the parks or service corps. And, and once we do that, there's a lot of back and forth between us and the parks and the park service to figure out where we can actually effectively and in a timely fashion activate those dollars and put them to work in an effective way. We're talking today with Will Shafroff, the CEO of the National Park Foundation, on the projects that they're tackling across uh, the park system to help improve the the visitor experience. We'll be right back after a short break. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference too at friendsofacadia.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. So Will, as anyone who follows National Park Service issues, finding housing for park employees is becoming a bigger and bigger problem due to the advent of Airbnb and VRBO, vacation rental by owner. Is that something that the foundation can help the Park Service tackle? It is, in fact, and, and we have been heard. Um, years ago, we actually conducted a study with a consulting firm that's now no longer in existence called Marstel Day. They've, they've merged into another group, but they, they helped us to, to look at, you know, what are the underlying authorities that other federal agencies and the public agencies have that enable them to engage in public-private partnerships or in other ways in which those agencies can get things done. And so Marstall Day came back and, 
and helped identify a number of authorities that DOD had, especially around energy and housing, so that you, a, a, th a private third party could could either construct and or manage um, facilities. And and um, you certainly learned some things from both what DOD had done right and, and had not done as well. But it basically opened the aperture a little bit for the Park Service to realize that there are some things that, that could be done. And so, you know, some of the some of the research on that is is consistent with what's now looked at it in a bill called the Lodge Act, which is before Congress right now, to look for ways in which public land management agencies can have their authorities expanded so they can meet the housing needs of their employees, both seasonal and year round, because it, it's become a, a crisis. You talked about Airbnb and, and VRBO being a new dynamic in the system. Some of it is just really old dilapidated housing that needs to be replaced and there isn't there isn't the resources to do that. And another is just the dynamic between some of these gateway communities becoming too expensive to live in and the growing uh, demand within the, the, the visitation of the park so this visitation has gone up. And so there's a lot of factors at play. Uh, so the Marstall Day study, the the, the, the work that that um, is happening around the Lodge Act, we've also are providing the Park Service with some some resources to do some deep dive assessments around specific parks to understand their housing needs. As you can appreciate, Jackson Jackson Hole, Wyoming is not the same as Medora, North Dakota, which is not the same as places on Cape Hatteras. You know, there may be some similarities in these places, but but the dynamics are different, or the the proportion of issues around Airbnb may be 20% in one place and 80% in another. And so therefore the solutions that the park service needs to consider are gonna be different. And we're trying to help them be, be, be smarter about how to deal with that. And then hopefully we're gonna be in a position to, to, to help them in a financial basis once we have a better idea of what the need is. Yeah, I was just wondering about that, that timing situation because uh, for example, Rocky Mountain National Park, um, I think it was in 2020 or it might be 2021, they lost a number of uh, employee housing to the wildfires in the western half and the northern half of the park. And um, while the Park Service was able to come up with a, a plan on how to replace those structures, funding was two years off, which is a big problem. Uh, and I'm just wondering if there's a way to speed up that uh, funding mechanism as opposed to you know, waiting to go through the National Park Service's uh, priority list. Well, you you raise a good point. I mean, the you know the the, the Great American Outdoors Act contains six and a half billion dollars for the Park Service to address deferred maintenance, and you know it will take a big, effective bite out of that that hole, if you will, for deferred maintenance. But there's still going to be a lot more left, and and some of that could go towards rehabilitation of housing, but the housing need dwarfs what 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 is it going to be available through for through goa so yeah i mean i think one of the things that we're trying to do is is by hopefully the congress will pass the lodge act that, that we will then be in a position to assist with some more public private partnership options we're not really the organizations up on the hill lobbying for additional revenues for these things we think it's a good idea at this point but but we think our unique role will be around helping them find uh, private capital that could help be a, a seed or a catalyst for additional housing units in these places. Yeah. Lodge Act, it was introduced by a, a Utah representative, Blake Moore. I know a little bit about it, not not a lot, but I've heard concerns that, um, you know, this, how do you control 
the pricing of, of facilities, of lodgings that might come out of the, the Lodge Act. Any idea? Would there be price controls? Well, you know, I had I served for, for three years on the County Planning Commission out in, in California, Kurt. So I, I had some experience around the ability for decision makers to to provide, you know, just they do in, in many local government settings where they provide um, a limitation on the rate at which rents can be increased or a certain number of units would be held back for low and moderate income families that have to qualify based upon income, demonstrated income. So there are definitely ways you can do that. And it's happening all over the country. So I think that that kind of creativity is, is something we need to bring to these, these critical question, because right now, um, there are a lot of both full and part-time people who can't afford to work in the park service anymore because they have to drive, either have to pay too much for housing, they have to commute too far to find housing that's affordable and it becomes, you know, an added, you know, a couple hours a day anyway onto their work day. And, you know, at some point they say, I just can't afford to do this anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I know a number of parks uh, this year have been advertising for housing for their seasonal employees. In fact, Indiana Dunes National Park, um, twice they sent out press releases practically begging um, people to, to offer um, lodging for their seasonal employees. You have the same problem up at Mount Rainier National Park. Um, there's a third park that I can't put my fingers on. And then there was a kind of a creative solution uh, for Acadia National Park that Senator King came up with through legislation to provide, uh, I think it was a land swap and, and some money that is allowing for um, building of, of housing for, for park employees up there. I'm just wondering, you know, is that, is that something we'll see more of, uh, more, more um, congressional people saying, you know, I want to take care of the park service employees in my district, so I'm going to um, come up with uh, similar legislation? Well, I hope that, that the Lodge Act passes and we can have more of a systemic solution to that problem, Kurt, because I think you, you make a good point that if we have, you know, 300 special bills to address housing in individual parks or other public land areas, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. We yeah. need to have a more thoughtful process that I think the Lodge Act that, that uh, Congressman Warren and Congressman Panetta have supported would help to do that. I mean, the other, the other th- example I was going to give is that the superintendent of Acadia shared with me that that uh, he was only able to fill about 120 of 160 seasonal employee slots last year, primarily because of the unaffordability of housing for the employees. They just couldn't find places to live. That meant that more of the seasonal workers were from the area who already had housing. And that's fine. But he, he says, you know, part of the value of the seasonal employees is that they're coming from all over the country usually, and you just get a, a more diverse perspective about things. And those people end up going and working other places and building up their own careers in the park service through those diverse experiences. And the bottom of all this is that, you know, the most important asset in the national park system are the 20,000 employees who are the rangers and the interpreters and the managers and the maintenance people who, who keep them going and make that visitor experience what it is. Yeah, no, it's, it's a real, a real problem and it's not going to go away by itself. Another real problem that's not going to go away by itself is, is climate change. It's becoming more and more of an issue in terms of impacts to the parks. We can just point to this past winter and the closures of Yosemite, Sequoia, and Kings Canyon National Parks because of the seemingly endless winter storms that pummeled California. There are invasive species issues tied to climate change, sea level rise impacts, and more. 
Is the foundation involved in any climate change initiatives to help make parks more resilient to these changes? Yes, we are. And and I was just thinking, I talked to Superintendent Cicely Muldoon this morning from Yosemite, and, and she was talking about the amount of snow on, uh, on the pass uh, that will likely be not open for much longer, much later than the normal. And that affects you know, ability for visitors to get to certain parts of the park and the, the flow, the transportation flow, et cetera. That said, it's also, you know, we're having record rainfall it will also be good in other ways for the ecosystem. And so it's it's usually, you and I talked earlier about the the importance of of uh, the amount of, of moisture in the in the Colorado River Basin. And so it's one of these things where it's a it, it's a it's a plus minus in some ways. But the answer is yes, we were actively involved in a number of ways with the Park Service to address climate change, um, not only better understanding it, but also in some of the restoration and resilience efforts. On the on the understanding of it, we we have a we've been supporting scientific work in the parks for uh, quite a while, and we've recently been able to expand our science fellowship program that will be significantly focused on climate change related impacts to provide the opportunity for the Park Service to have much longer term research and analysis being done around climate change, you know, this this is happening quickly, but all the more reason we need these long-term studies to really understand kind of the systemic changes that are happening within these landscapes. And so that's a big piece of it. We've also um, really plussed up the amount of money that's going towards service course, Kurt. Uh, these are, you know, these organizations that exist all across the country to hire young people, 16 to 25 year olds, generally speaking, to work in our parks to, to to address the effects of climate change. And that could be, you know, from an all-women fire corps crew up in the Northwest uh, and, and in places like Yellowstone to people in Rocky Mountain National Park and many other places where they're addressing issues around, uh, around climate change, whether it be restoration of habitat, understanding, doing additional scientific studies, or dealing with the effects of fire and flood and, and other kind of uh, weather damage. Yeah, those positions are, are so important for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, introducing youth to the national park system and all the different ologies, as I like to refer to, potentially um, setting them on a career path down the road. And of course, you know, all the, the sweat and, and burn muscles that they uh, contribute to to making the parks better places. Um, just incredible. I wish I was uh, aware of similar programs when I was uh, 16 and 17 years old. Yeah, the other thing they do is they become national park champions. You know, they will never be the same having spent a summer or two working in the parks and and getting to understand them and, you know, probably have a, have a life-changing experience. And those people end up being leaders in our country, and they've had that seminal experience at a young age that, that will help direct them ever ongoingly. I want to mention a couple other few of mine that I meant, I, I forgot to mention this, our, a science fellow, Veronica Radis, who's, who's currently studying coral reefs as one of our fellows. And um, what she's learning is going to help us know more about how to better protect the 88 ocean and coastal spark, uh, parks that the, the Park Service has. And so it's it's not only what's happening and where they're doing the work, but also more broadly. We've also done some things around renewable energy. And we supported it. Joshua Tree supported the installation of solar panels at a, on a ranger station in the park. And it allows to, for a backcountry ranger to, for search and rescue missions, as well as the sun-powered bunkhouse. You know, getting 
diesel or other forms of energy into the backcountry in a lot of these parks is just not possible. And so uh, we're trying to uh, make life better for the rangers and safer for the visitors, but also uh, reduce the carbon footprint that it would always be necessary to haul in diesel. And then finally, um, you know, just sort of a, you know, there's an element of the, the conservation of land plays in in, in, in climate change reduction, I mean, ensuring that land never gets developed. And so at Hawaii, Hawaii Volcanoes National Park, I'm hoping to go see it next month. Um, in 2022, we supported the Trust for Public Lands and the park service adding more than 16,000 acres of property to the park that will help preserve the unique natural and cultural resources from development. Yeah, no, fascinating park. And um, just one example of the good that can be done across the national park system. Um, going back to the, the backcountry ranger stations and, and solar-powered um, cabins, you probably know up in Glacier National Park um, some years ago, they used a, a miniature hydro generator to, to tap the energy of a river to provide electricity for one of the backcountry ranger stations up there. Just, just yeah, fast. Hydro is a really amazing technology and highly underutilized, I think. But yeah, we have to be prepared to do things like that in order to minimize our carbon footprint and also maximize visitor experience and, and employee comfort. You mentioned, uh, I want to go back to science. You mentioned science fellows. Um, do you have a number of science fellows? I'm, I'm wondering if this is something like endowed chairs that you have across the country to focus on specific um, natural resource issues, whether it's uh, coral reefs or uh, you know um, sequoia forests. Well, we had an initial round of, of three science fellows. And often what happens with, with donors, Kurt, is we kind of get a starter grant, you know, and they, they said, we're gonna we're gonna test this idea out. We're gonna test your ability to execute it. We're gonna test the park services ability to integrate it into their workflow, and it was successful. So we just got a, a big renewal from a donor to do that. That we've pledged to match more than more than one to one, and so I believe over the next six or eight years we're gonna be able to have another twenty fellows that work for the park service on dedicated science three year science projects, and so. That's really exciting for us. It's really exciting for that part of the park service that, that knows they're going to have those resources there so they can begin to plan out a little longer in advance uh, this kind of work. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, you'd mentioned seven pillars earlier. Um, we, we had a mind meld because I wrote down the seven pillars, uh, landscape and wildlife connectivity, youth engagement and education, history and culture, outdoor exploration, resilience and sustainability, communities and workforce, parks of the future. How did you come about developing those pillars? Some are obvious, some are not. Right. Well, I think that the, let's just, let's just all boil them down to like, one is conservation of land, of wildlife, of, of, of natural resources. One is related to history and culture. That might be more buildings and telling stories around. And those are, those are, two kind of core parts of the Park Service's mission. So those were kind of obvious for us to do. The sustainability piece, I just talked about that, solar energy and other forms of sustainability. We need to be helping the Park Service, you know, kind of live its values around um, climate change and sustainability. And, and that's not necessarily something the budget that the government, that the Congress gives them is doing as quickly or as well as it might. So we've decided to help them. They're really glad to take that. That lead um, more to more to report in the next month on that. Kurt, we'll reach out to you and ask you if you want to cover on that. <laughs> um, the parks of the future is really 
um, something that we begin to to work with the park service on, you know, helping them to think five, 10, 20 years out in the future. I mean, some of the trends that we have around climate change, around housing, around workforce development, around visitor experience are things that, that we need to be thinking ahead. Uh, and, and as a government agency that operates on an annual budget and often on a CR, uh, you know, it's difficult for them to do that. And, and, you know, thinking about the digital experience for the visitor and using use of technology, it's, it's here, it's happening, you know, in our society, we can't, you know, the partial is it doesn't, can't and doesn't want to remain a, a completely analog organization. It needs to be more digital. And so helping them to lean into that space has been something that we've been working on within the last three or four years. And there's, they're enthusiastic about the opportunities that exist there. So we're trying to be a resource to them to, to help them get ahead of some of the challenges that we know are coming. And then the other three are really more around connecting people to the parks, whether it be, you know, the workforce part, which is both things like service scores, but also our partnerships, you know, that we work with friends groups on. The connecting audiences is to, to really be thinking about how do we get more, make sure that everybody in this country feels a belonging. And that's a that's something that we can be especially helpful to the park service on because we, we can make investments and support organizations and causes that it's going to be harder for them to do. And outdoor exploration is huge just in terms of the trails and the the way that one of the main reasons that people go to parks is to is for the outdoor recreation and the outdoor exploration. So these are all places where we think, again, the park service has a need, we can raise money for, and we can help advance uh, the work that they want to do. So can individuals, um, when they send in their check, indicate which pillar they want to contribute to? Absolutely. Yeah. And they could be, it could be general operating support, it could be pillar focused. Um, you know, we try not to get down to we want you to hire five people at this park to do this thing. You know, that can make our life really difficult and the park service life a little difficult. So, you know, to the degree to which we can stick to those pillars and it gives us some flexibility to, to try to deploy those dollars where we think they're going to do the most good. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm kind of interested to hear what's going to come about in the, in the next month or so, and I'll be looking forward to that announcement. Will, it's been great having you today and visiting about the, the National Park Foundation and the, the work that you guys do. It's a, a never-ending challenge, I'm sure. It is, but, you know, what a what an honor to be able to work in this space for these, these uh, important American treasures and, you know, feel really fortunate. I think we all do in the National Park Foundation team to, to be a part of the consequential work that's going on and to wake up every day and realize that we get to have this part as a as our mission to to help preserve and protect these amazing places and also improve the visitor experience so that people like you and I who've had the amazing opportunity to to have seminal experiences to have those moments of awe and wonder uh, to be able to give back and share those with many other people so great honor thanks for thanks for doing what you do Kurt well thanks for joining us uh, this week Will and um Enjoy your time at Hawaii Volcanoes. It's a fabulous park, and uh, I envy you. Thank you so much. That was Will Shafroff, the CEO of the National Park Foundation. It is National Park Week, so we hope you get out there and enjoy the parks. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. Composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, 
These musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.